And so the story goes, Jonah chapter 1, verses 7 through 17. This is the word of God, may he richly bless it. And they said to one another, come, let us cast lots that we may know on whose account this evil has come upon us. And so they cast lots and the lot fell on Jonah. Then they said to to him, tell us on whose account this evil has come upon us. What is your occupation and where did you come from? What is your country and of what people are you? And he said to them, I am a Hebrew and I fear the Lord, the God of heaven, who made the sea and the dry land. Then the men who were were exceedingly afraid and said to him, what is this that you have done? For the men knew that it He was fleeing from the presence of the Lord because he had told them. And they said to him, What shall we do to you that the sea might quiet down for us? For the sea grew more and more tempestuous. And he said to them, Pick me up and hurl me into the sea. Then the sea will quiet down for you. For I know it is because of me that this great tempest has come upon you. Nevertheless, the men rode hard to get back to dry land. But they could not, for the sea grew more and more tempestuous against them. Therefore they called out to the Lord, O Lord, let us not perish for this man's life, and lay not on us innocent blood, for you, O Lord, have done as it pleased you. So they picked up Jonah and hurled him into the sea, and the sea ceased from its raging. Then the men feared the Lord exceedingly, and they offered a sacrifice to the Lord and made vows. And the Lord appointed a great fish to swallow up Jonah. And Jonah was in the belly of the fish three days and three nights. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be God. I love American idioms. If you like American idioms, little phrases that we say. Uh... There's one that goes like this. It's called, it goes like this. Cut to the chase. Cut to the chase. You're in a meeting. Maybe someone is sort of hemming and hawing, and they, someone says, cut to the chase. Let's get to the point, right? Actually, the, the history of the phrase cut to the chase uh, comes from the, uh, the movie world. In the early movie days, um, inevitably, there was a, a car chase at the end, some sort of chase scene. And when a director didn't know what else to do, maybe they're running out of script, they, they cut to the chase. And, uh, and that's how they finished the movie. And uh, today, we have a text before us where an incredible storm has come up. And uh, these sailors, sailors, these merchants have uh, come along and they have, they're, they're crying out, cut to the chase here. Jonah, tell us what is going on. There is a real crisis going on. A familiar story to many of you familiar book to many of you. But they cut to the chase because boats can sink. Uh, Waves can cause real problem for boats, and uh, they want to know what's up. So we know we have a wayward prophet. They don't know they have a wayward prophet. This storm has come out of nowhere, and uh, that has caused them to be really concerned. Something's up in the universe. And... uh, the captain of the ship has gone down and, and has awakened Jonah and has begun to ask him questions. And now 
the whole crew is asking Jonah questions. Jonah has a secret. And uh, God is chasing Jonah down. You know that. It needs to come out into the open. And there's something very, very important for us to grasp in this, in this scene where Jonah is admitting his, his need, his, he's coming clean. And uh, for, for us to grasp uh, Christ in this text and to find good news in this text, let's, let's take a moment and let's pause and let's ask our God to, to guide us. So will you join me in prayer? Father, I thank you that you take your word and you take these words off the pages and you make them come alive. Lord, I, I thank you that this text is familiar to us. And I hope that you will take all that familiarity and help us then find ourselves in a story that we, we know well. Father, there are some obvious things about this text, and then there are some things that are not so clear or, or so easy for us to accept. And I pray you'd help us. Lord, we do pray you will open our eyes that this will be a genuine encounter with you and that you will make that encounter bring us to Jesus Christ, for who, the one in whom we have real hope and trust. And so we pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. Max Weber may not be a name that you are familiar with. Uh, Max Weber was a sociologist years and years ago, and he was the first to observe that the Western world, particularly the European world, not quite America, but Max Weber was the first one to observe that in cathedrals there were angels, and uh, outside there were gargoyles, and there was talk about demons and angels and spirits, and this kind of language in the medieval Europe church and in Europe in general. But when modern times came, say this something like the 1800s even, when these modern times came, he observed that the West was becoming disenchanted. We lived in a world of modern machinery. And so he is famous for this phrase called the disenchantment of the West, Max Weber. We no longer live in a world of angels and demons. The world has been disenchanted. Well, we've entered into a world of enchantment because these sailors are convinced that these waves are connected to some god somewhere. They live in an enchanted world. The world was packed with meaning. And these sailors are doing something that characterized the ancient world. The world we see is connected to an unseen world. Now that's good for a crowd that believes in cell signals and microwave ovens. And that's good for you. It's important for you to hear. There are things called demons and angels. Yes, and the unseen world interacts with this world. And so, if there was a crop that had failed, there was no rain, there was a God behind that failure. And these sailors 
takes center stage in the story of Jonah. And one of the nice things is we're finally going to hear from Jonah. He hasn't said much up to this point. So remember the context is a terrible storm. Verse 4 tells us that God caused this to happen. And we know that Jonah is actually a book full of surprising discoveries. There's twists and turns to this book. There's a big twist and a big turn coming up. So there's surprising discoveries. And I would say that the real story of the book of Jonah is a discovery of God's heart. God is a heart for the pagan nation, the Assyrians, the capital city, Nineveh. That's the surprise. That's the discovery. And of course, it connects with the Abrahamic covenant. Through Abraham, God would bless all the nations. And Israel, of old, didn't get that. And Jonah is a living illustration of God's intent to to use Israel as a light to the nations. And when Jesus comes on the scene as the ultimate final prophet, he points out how Israel has failed to care for the nations. And you think of Jesus, and he cleans the temple, and he drives out the, the money changers. He says that, My father's house will be a house of prayer for all peoples. He's indicting Israel. He's indicting the people that he encountered of his day, that they had failed to care for the nations and how they lived. So in in this book, there's a great discovery of God's heart for, for Assyria. Assyria was a really wicked nation, and God is willing to extend to them the preaching of repentance. It's really quite remarkable. Now, we know that in chapter 1, we find a prophet doesn't listen, and he thinks he can just go his merry way. I don't have to listen to God, and he flees the presence of the Lord. That's kind of the emphasis, first two verses. He flees the presence of the Lord. He finds a ship uh, traveling, and he's doing quite well. He gets a passage on a trip. He's doing quite well. Um, Some people would argue that uh, God's will is unfolding for him, meaning everything's gone smooth. Don't you ever reason that way? Sometimes I reason that way. Why all the doors open so smoothly? This must be God's will. Well, Jonah's doing fine. He's found his boat. He's heading to Spain. Everything's going going well. So the sailors are in a panic. And uh, I don't know if you've ever been in really, really rough seas. You ever been in really rough seas? Crazy rough seas? Um, my family and I were stuck in what was called a typhoon off Taiwan and a long time ago. I won't say it. I think someone named Nixon was president. But anyway, so Typhoon Shirley, that was, what, that was her name. And for three days we encountered Shirley. Incredible. And my brothers and I, we actually snuck out onto the deck. Crazy boys, yes. I don't think my mom knows to this day we did that. We're holding on for dear life, seeing these incredible, incredible, uh, huge waves. And um, we thought it was pretty cool. So the first discovery is Jonah's identity. Verses 6 through 10, uh, they start firing questions at him. Uh, the, the captain has brought him up on top of the deck. They're, they're trying to figure out what God he has offended and perhaps they have offended by how they've treated him. Now, there were national gods, there were family gods, and there were personal gods back then. A lot of gods. And they are 
trying to figure out what's going on here. And they, if they can just connect to the right God, they might be in luck. And so the phrase is used of the captain, get up, get up. That's the phrase that God used in verse 1. Get up and go to Nineveh. Interesting. And maybe your God will care for us. And they're seeking to discern the truth of what's going on. Who is the cause of this? Is someone on board who's made this happen? So they cast lots, and people, scholars think that this is really just rolling dice. Maybe numbers were assigned to people. So the lot goes to Jonah. And then, wow, the first question is, tell us on whose account this evil has fallen upon us. In other words, which of us, which, which of our group, may be the cause of this, how we've treated you? Interesting, isn't it? Um, then they ask him about his occupation, what country he's from, what people are you, and they're trying to figure out the connection. What has gone wrong here? Is he escaping something? Is he, has he committed a crime? They've got some kind of a stowaway here, and he's, just, he's, he's, he's going and he's avoiding justice. And then there is the discovery of Jonah's identity. In verse 9, he says, I'm a Hebrew, and I fear the Lord, the God of heaven who made the sea and the dry land. Now, what's going on here is that's sort of how the, the, uh, the Hebrews would explain their God to pagans in that day. The, they, would use emphasis, they would emphasize creation and God's lordship or sovereignty over creation. And so this leads quickly to a conclusion. These mariners know that a God is after their boat because of this one guy. Now, we know, as we're reading this story, we go, well, nice, nice confession there, Jonah. Not bad. I fear the Lord God who made the, the sea and the dry land. Not bad. But you and I know we're, we're already catching on. He doesn't really live out of that identity. Uh, he's quick to have sort of a confession, a creed, but there's a disconnect with, with the creed in his life. What is really going on with Jonah? Why doesn't he live out of his identity? Well, one of the things that we see right up front with Jonah is that he has control issues. Uh, And I'm going to suggest that his desires for control come out of a sense of a weariness of the world. You see, if you're looking out on the world and you're just lamenting the condition of things, and inside you're kind of upset and you're weary of the world, You think something should be done. And you're growing impatient with God. No one knows around you. But your news is disturbing. Things are not good in the world. Where is God? I'm going to suggest that Jonah was very weary of the world. And he did the one thing he 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 could do that was left. I can quit. I'm going to get out of here. I know a place that's got to be peaceful. And at least I can control my destiny. Jonah was fed up. But out of that, out of that frustration, he exhibits control. I'm going to suggest that. You see, Jonah doesn't want Nineveh to get, to get justice. He wants Nineveh to get retribution. He wants Nineveh to get, he wants to get back at them. He does not want mercy. The world should be a certain way. Do you think that? 
The world should be a certain way. How does, it, how does the world affect you? Do you know the world is, First John tells us, the world is a source of temptation. It is. The world is a source of temptation, and you're processing how the world is being managed and directed. We're all doing that all the time. Why is that person in charge? Why is that person my boss? How did, how did that happen? We're processing things. We're responding. Desires are formed in our hearts. So always, we're always responding to the world as a source of temptation. And we have cravings. Uh, I've been reading a lot of David Pallison, so you get David Pallison quotes a lot. This one's like a winner. It's in your, it's in your worship folder on, in the early pages there under the reflections. The Christian life is a great paradox. Those who die to self find self. Those who die to their cravings will receive many times as much in this age and in the age to come eternal life. Luke 18, 29. They will find new passions worth living for and dying for. And listen to this. If I crave happiness, I will receive misery. (laughs) If I crave to be loved, I will receive rejection. If I crave significance, I will receive futility. If I can crave control, Jonah, I will receive what? Chaos, the storm. If I crave reputation, I will receive humiliation. But if I long for God and his wisdom and mercy, I will receive God and mercy and wisdom and mercy. Along the way, sooner or later, listen to how he puts this, I will receive happiness, love, meaning, order, and glory. You can't put those things first. You have to put God first. Surprising discovery. The discovery of Jonah's identity. It's helpful, insightful. The story's moving along. Now the sailors are, okay, we've got the news. Now this is some discovery of some either, even greater honesty. Let's move on to the second point. The, mar- the mariners now ask Jonah what they should do, and Jonah knows what should be done. And uh, I would say that this is the beginning of repentance in Jonah's heart. I would suggest that. They ask him in verse 11, what shall we do that the sea may quiet down for us? For the sea grew more and more tempestuous. God is putting more and more pressure on them. It is not getting easier. And Jonah realizes he's under the sentence of death. For peace to come on the waters, he needs to be thrown into them. It's because of me. It's because of me that this great tempest has come upon you, verse 12. So obedience for Jonah will require him to do what he resisted in the beginning. To love others, he would have to put himself on the line. For him, this was the end of the line. Jonah doesn't know what's going to happen, except the obvious. He's going to die. His controlling tendencies had come to an end. He's sort of been reckless with his feelings, his thoughts, and his actions. He's gotten others into trouble. They didn't deserve this, in this sense. And now he has to face what he cannot change, what will not change. The storm is not going away. And all of us have to face plans that don't go our way. Well, the sailors are very 
generous fellows because they hear his request and suggestion, ah, I'll throw me in, and they start rowing hard. They try to go to land. They're nice guys. And then the sea gets worse. And then they cry out, let us not perish for this man's life and lay not on, not his, his innocent, on us innocent blood. And then they turn and praise God and they say, for you, O Lord, have done as it pleased you. Listen to the humility of the sailors. That was written for the original audience that thought there was no capacity in pagans to acknowledge the true God. It's interesting in the book of Jonah. Apart from Nineveh that does repent, the sailors are the ones who, who express worship. Now Jonah's going to do this in Jonah chapter 2, but it's really quite remarkable. We detect no bitterness in these sailors for, for God arranging this, for God allowing this Jonah to be on their boat. It's really interesting. They were fooled. They thought he was a regular guy. They, they've had their boat almost sink. It's interesting. They didn't hold it against God. So Jonah has given them some deep honesty. It's me. I've been keeping a secret. And my secret has caused this sea to do what it's doing because my God is doing that. So thirdly, then, there's a discovery of a better fear. So they picked up Jonah and hurled him into the sea. I wonder if this one of those guys who just was like, get this guy off this boat. And they really put some energy into it. And the sea ceased from raging. And then verse 16, one of the most beautiful verses in Jonah, then the men feared the Lord. Just imagine, just suddenly this calm comes over these waters. It's like a lake. I don't know. Know how well Jonah treaded water, I don't know. But is he just near the boat? Is he just looking up at them? And it's just this moment. This is unbelievable. This is wild. And the sea is calm. And they offered a sacrifice to the Lord and made vows. Outside of the borders of Israel and Judah in those days, someone turned to the living God and gave praise and thanksgiving. The point of the verse, or these verses, is to indicate that the storm was from God and peaceful calm comes from God. And no attempt by human beings to fabricate peace or to make peace happen will work. Jonah's floating on the water. And what is he communicating by being out there in the water? It was me, guilty as charged, unable to run anymore. That points out something about us, doesn't it? Often our circumstances get tough, get difficult. We've been running from God, at least at our heart, in our hearts. And uh, it's hard for us to quiet down, to admit that we have been running. And I want you to, in a strange way, find some encouragement in your failure to admit that you're running. Some of the great Puritans understood that they, they had hearts that were drifting and disobedient. Scottish Presbyterian Robert Murray McShane 
one of the more famous Puritans, he, he referred to his own Bible reading and, and his concentration on the Bible. This is a minister of the Bible. He's a minister of the Word of God. And he's talking about when he reads the Bible. He says this. He, he found it to be very difficult for him to concentrate on the Bible. And he says this. While I was at the Word, I saw I had a wild heart, which was as hard to stand and abide before the presence of God as a bird before any man. John Bunyan talked about how no one knows, no man knows, the byways the heart has and back lanes to slip away from the presence of God. You don't know how many side roads you have to slip away from God's presence. Clever ways. You may not even be fully conscious of them. Habits that are deeply formed in you. Ways you move around it. Ways you get through a sermon. Ways you get around this or that. Ways you avoid the presence of God. These are two extraordinarily godly men who say, I have a wild heart. It's like a bird before a man. There's byways in my heart and back lanes. My heart is like a bird before a man. We, by nature, want to be in God's presence like a thief wants to go down to the police station. That, is this, that residual effect of sin is still in your system. So is there a breakthrough that's needed in us? Is there a discovery that's needed in us? It's a discovery about our hearts. Be encouraged. You're in worse shape than you thought. Your heart drifts more radically than you imagined. And God desires to re-enchant your heart with a a vital faith that looks to Jesus Christ Christ who is the one who had a steady heart, who was the one who had no byways or back lanes. His heart was always focused on his father. He never had a heart that was like a bird before a man. Jonah ends up in the water because he's guilty. Of course, we know that Christ, Christ becomes guilty. He becomes representatively guilty as he enters into his final final evening, enduring the trials, and upon the cross. But he was not really guilty. And I say this to encourage you that you would have confidence to enter into God's presence. And this is the theme of the book of Hebrews, and then I'll wrap it up. What Christians resist, or they don't fully appreciate, is the access we have into the presence of God through Jesus Christ. We don't grasp it. We don't appreciate it. We don't, it. It's not at the level of value in our hearts that it should be. You have access into the very presence of God through Jesus Christ. <clears throat> we would naturally want to run from the presence of God. And the scriptures come to encourage us. You can run into the presence of God, the most holy place in heaven, Through the blood of Jesus Christ, you're going to be safe there. In fact, it's the safest place you could ever be because of Christ's atonement for you. 
So God desires for you to be given confidence to enter into the holy, holiest of places. God's very presence, and it's not based on your obedience, but it is based upon Christ's obedience by the blood of Jesus. Hebrews 10.22 addresses our Jonah heart. Jonah needed water that day to address the secrets of his heart. It was the result. It was, it was because he was guilty, he was tossed into the water. But God in his grace gives us something like water to address the secrets of our hearts. He gives us the blood of Jesus Christ. And Hebrews 10, 22 and following says that, that God himself has sprinkled our hearts clean from an evil conscience and our bodies have been washed with pure water. That's an image, not only of baptism, but it's an image of what Jesus has done to deal with our tendency, our guilt, and our, our impulse to run from the presence of God. It's through the blood of Jesus you can now enter a place that you would feel where you would be condemned, where you would die. We, we should be in, encouraged by the scripture that the whole of us, all that is wrong and twisted and rebellious about us, the whole of us has been sprinkled, has been washed clean. And you are exhorted today to hold fast to this confession. As weak as you feel, as, as wild as your heart may feel, don't let your heart define who you are. Don't let your sin define who you are or shape your identity. Christian, Jesus Christ gave his blood to redeem you from an evil conscience, a guilty conscience. And the message of the New Testament is true. It's true. It's true. You can now enter into the presence of God. It is no longer a threat to you. So confess today, Lord, I have a wild heart. I have a wild heart. I've got nothing on Jonah. And I can only have peace through Jesus Christ. And all that could be known about me is known about me, and you don't hold it against me. And apart from your grace, I would find my own ship. I'd find my own way to travel. Apart from your grace, I wouldn't want you. But let's hold fast to that confession. Jesus Christ came to bring us into the very presence of God without shame. Guilty, atoned for, no shame. Isn't that great? Let's pray. Lord, we have wild hearts. Father, we're fearful. We have plans. We have ships we'd rather take and try and solve our problems. I pray, Lord, you bring us us home to the one who'd had no such tendencies. Cause our faith to rejoice in, in the Christ who had such a steady heart. Thank you for the gospel of Jesus Christ that tells us It's not about us. It's about Christ. 
Thank you for your word today. Help us not be like a bird before a man in your presence. We love you in Christ's name. Amen.